If you have a Bible, we will be in Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow on the screens as I read our section of scripture this morning. Friends, these words are inspired, sufficient, and true, and they are given to us in love. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Before you're seated, would you pray with me? Well, gracious father, we come into this place as your church and maybe skeptics this morning as we long to hear from you. And so, Lord, would you encourage us? Would you fill us with hope in the beauty of your gospel and your grace? May we see Jesus in him only. We pray this in his name. And everyone said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Uh, if you are a guest with us today, I'm really glad you are here. We've been having new people uh, visiting with us recently. And so I'm just really glad that you are here. Uh, we're in a new sermon series over Holy Week called The Road to Easter. And I don't know about you, but there is a longing within me for resurrection and a new world. Uh, This world we find ourselves in, when we look around us, there is pain, isolation, division. There are wars taking place on a global scale. We are longing for a resurrection. But we don't just have to look around us to see the need for a resurrection. We can look actually inside of us and see the need for a resurrection, a new world. Um, Maybe you're here this morning longing for that inside of you. What one author said, we find in us the weariness of the self, the weariness of the self. I experienced that. I don't know about you. We need a resurrection. We need the journey on the road to Easter. And so we find ourselves on this road today in our scripture on the outskirts of the city walls of Jerusalem with the king who is coming to you. That's really the focus of our sermon today is the king who is coming to you. And that's good news for us today. And that's the focus we'll have. And so we find ourselves in uh, the church calendar year. We're in the season of Holy Week and the triumphal entry of this king who comes to you this Palm Sunday with resurrection, with hope for a new world around us, 
and in us. But the road to Easter and to resurrection doesn't look like what we might have expected. Uh, In January 2008, Rachel and I had just returned from our honeymoon uh, the previous night. And for some reason, I agreed that following Sunday morning to preach a sermon at my local church in Houston. Don't ask me why I did that. It was foolish, stupid, but I did. I, we, we flew in late that night, Saturday night, and then Sunday morning early, I was there preaching a sermon. Uh, and one thing uh, a seminary professor had taught me uh, very early, uh, becoming a pastor, he said, listen, guys, your first 200 sermons that you preach, throw them away. They're going to be awful. They're going to be, no one's going to want to listen to them. First 200. Now, just to give you some context, preaching at this church in Houston, I was at maybe sermon 12. So very early, very early in the process. And I I preached this, this sermon. And as you could expect, it was awful. Um, And, but that wasn't the worst part. The, The salt in the wound came later. Uh, I had a friend who, who, who came up to me a couple days later and they said, Tyler, when you preached that Sunday, did, did you know who was there? And they began to share with me uh, this pastor, one of, the, uh, one of the largest churches in America, the pastor of that church, also in Houston, happened to be there that Sunday morning. Uh, amazing preacher, super gifted preacher. Uh, he came, he just attended. Um, He was there. He didn't make any announcement. He was there. He didn't say anything. He came quickly and then he left probably because of the sermon. (laughs) Didn't hear anything. Didn't know that there was greatness in our presence and we didn't know it. Many of you may have heard of the name Joshua Bell. Bell is considered one of the greatest violinists in our world. Uh, Grammy-nominated violinist, uh, tours the world, plays at Carnegie Hall. Uh, In 2007, Joshua Bell wanted to do an experiment playing with crowds in the Washington, D.C. train station. He, He just wanted to come, set up shop, bring his violin, start playing. And his friend was betting that only 100 people would actually stop and listen to him. Thousands of people coming in and out of that train station. Only 100 people will actually stop and listen. And maybe he will collect $150 of support. That's what his friend was thinking. Well, of all the people that passed by him that day, thousands of people in and out of that train station, only 27 people gave him money. And only seven people actually stopped to listen to him play. The Grammy award-winning violinist who commands rooms of thousands where people will pay incredible amounts of money to see him and to hear him. Do you want to guess what he collected that day for his efforts? $52.17. In the presence of greatness, no one knew. Now, Now, Bell went on and did this experiment again. He repeated it, but word got out that he was doing it and it was standing room only to hear him. Jesus has been journeying to Jerusalem with these followers and he now arrives on the edge of the city and Jesus asks you now to see his greatness. It's been veiled. It's been hidden. He's been operating under the radar. He asks you now to, to, to truly see him for who he is. 
that we find Jesus on the Mount of Olives heading to Jerusalem. But first, we must ask this question. Why is Jesus here? Why, why is Jesus here? Why, why, why is he standing at the Mount of Olives? That's our first question this morning. Why is Jesus here? A question for you this morning. Have you ever been hung up on a promise. Somebody, somebody made a promise to you in life and said they were going to follow through, said they were going to come through for you. You, you held on to that promise um, and you never let it go. Um, Kids will do this to you, by the way. Um, You promise something in a moment just so they will leave you alone, just so they would stop annoying you. You make promises you wish you could take back, but oh, they remember. Oh, they remember. Uh, you know, for some reason, they can't seem to remember when you ask them to clean their room. Um, they, they, you, you tell them to turn the TV off. They, they, Dad, I didn't hear you. Oh, they say. But they will hang on to a promise and they will never forget. The people of Israel have been hanging on to a promise for thousands of years. Uh, It it was this collective consciousness of the people of God for thousands of years. What was the promise? That there is a king who is coming to you. There is a king who is coming to you. We see this promise in longing in our passage. Look at verse five. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. There is a direct quote from Zechariah 9.9 in the Old Testament. There is a king who is coming to you. Uh, John the Baptist was, knew he was the front runner for this king who was coming. They, they, he knew his role was to prepare the way. But John, just like us, carries doubts and insecurities. Uh, John, at this point in the story, has been thrown into prison by those in power and he has doubts and he sends his disciples on to ask Jesus that question. This is what it says in Matthew 11. Now, when John heard and now John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, are you the one who is to come? Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? There was a promise that the people were holding on to this king who is coming. And the question is, will you, yes, you, will you receive him? Large crowds followed Jesus from Jericho. That was the town he was in previously. They have journeyed now on this very common road with these very common people as they've walked towards Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, they're, They're on the edge of the city. Massive crowds are walking in, pressing in for the festival of the Passover at this point. Just to give you some context, Jerusalem as an ancient city had about 20 to 30,000 people live in it full time. But during these festivals, during the Passover, they would say that the population would swell to about 150,000 people. Uh, Imagine that influx of people into Orlando and you thought traffic was bad. Now, massive crowds pushing in. Why is Jesus here? Why is Jesus here? Well, first we can see that Jesus was intentional about his movement as he stands on the edge of the city. We see in our passage, he he asked for his disciples to go get a donkey and a colt that are tied up. Why why a donkey? Um, I don't know if you know this, but you can tell a lot about a person by their transportation of choice. 
Um, you, you're, you, you're driving, you pull up to a red light, uh, and as you're pulling up to a red light, uh, the car next to you is a bright red sports car. What, what, what images or what, what assumptions do you begin to make about that car? These people like to drive fast. Um, you, you have a bright yellow car pull up next to you. Um, it doesn't matter what make or model. It's just a bright yellow car. What, what assumptions can we make? These people like to be seen. They like to be seen. Uh, you, you, you get a, a, a tr- giant truck. I know some of you have one of these. You have a giant truck, mud's all over the truck, and they pull up next to you. What do you think? Whoa, they are tough. Uh, they, they, are, they are rugged. Um, you, you, you get uh, a middle-aged man uh, who, who pulls up next to you in a motorcycle uh, and a fresh tattoo. Uh, if you're like me, you think midlife crisis. And then you, you, you pull up and then there is, there is this man and he's driving a minivan. What assumptions do you make? This is called dad life. Yeah. No one, I, I have a minivan and I know that they're not cool. They're not cool, but it's, it's just part of the survival that you take on. As a dad, the transportation of choice. And maybe 10 years from now, you'll pull up next to me and you'll see me uh, on a motorcycle with a fresh tattoo. (laughs) What you ride says a lot about you. The same for Jesus. There's an intentional reason that Jesus is riding a donkey on the Mount of Olives. Matthew is riding to his Jewish audience, and he knows that they're going to pick up these little hints that he's dropping in his account of the story. Why are there two donkeys in Matthew's story where we only find one donkey in the other gospel account? Some people will look at this and they say, see, Tyler, the Bible's not inspired. I just hold on, hold on. You have to remember, uh, in all the accounts, Jesus rode only one donkey So they're perfectly good reasons for why he mentions two in Matthew's account and only one in all the other accounts. First, two reasons. The donkey that we learn about, the second donkey we learn, uh, Mark's gospel tells us it was a donkey that had never been sat on before. So we know it's a very young donkey. And if you've done anything with taming young animals uh, that are being rid, it's good to have mom next to it. So the, the mom was brought to help calm the young donkey who was being trained. So that's the first reason. The second reason, probably the more important reason, there are two donkeys, is it's pointing to another story in the Bible of a king who was kicked out of ruling his people, who stood weeping over them, you guessed it, at the Mount of Olives. We read this story in 2 Samuel 15 and 16 with King David. Uh, In the context, Absalom, King David's son, has conspired to steal his father's throne There is the wrong king in Jerusalem, and we find David, like Jesus, weeping and standing on the Mount of Olives with two donkeys. That's what we read in 2 Samuel 15. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. Commentators believe that Matthew knows precisely 
why he is telling the story of two donkeys. That the rightful king stands on the outside of the city while another rules on the inside. Jesus is reenacting the story of David. Jesus is here on the Mount of Olives declaring the true king of the universe is coming to you. Do you see him? Do you see him? So Jesus was extremely intentional, but notice also he's incredibly provocative. Uh, You have to remember, Jesus has traveled all this way on foot. Everywhere he's been, he's been on foot. Everywhere they've went, uh, he has traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles on foot. His latest journey has him traveling from up north in Caesarea Philippi, now journeying down south for the festival of Passover in Jerusalem, all on foot. And we also learn from Jewish tradition and sources that all Jewish people arriving for Passover were supposed to arrive by foot for the festival. It was a way of collective humility and reverence for God. Everyone is on their feet. Everyone's this massive crowd. Everyone is walking in as a sign of humility and reverence to God. Why is Jesus here? Why is Jesus here? And the last mile into the city, he mounts a donkey. Why would he do that? Why is Jesus here? Well, I think R.T. France and his outstanding commentary, he says it up better than I could. He says this, for Jesus to ride the last mile to the city among a holy pedestrian crowd could only be a deliberate gesture designed to present his claim as king. As king, the king is coming to you. Why, why is Jesus here? He's proclaiming to the world and to you that he is the king of the universe this Palm Sunday. But that leads us to our second question. What does he bring? What what does Jesus bring? Have you ever seen something so unexpected it caught you by surprise? Something something that happened in a moment and you you were kind of overwhelmed by it. Someone shows grace undeserved. Um, Rachel and I, and my guess is some of you as well, uh, have been swept up in Ted Lasso mania. Any Ted Lasso fans here. Yeah, if only a few hands. So uh, I'll explain uh, the plot. Uh, Ted Lasso is a TV show telling the story of an American football coach who has been hired uh, to coach soccer in England at the highest level, though he's never played and never coached before. And, and the reason he's hired is a sabotage mission by the new owner of the soccer club in revenge against her ex-husband. It's a good show. (laughs) Ted, sadly, is caught in the middle of this story that he doesn't even know that she's out to ruin and destroy his life this whole time. But she, the owner, realizes what she has done. She has come to Ted to confess all her wrongs. And she believes everything in her. He's going to want nothing to do with her moving forward. But instead... And this is one of the many reasons I think they love, we love Ted Lasso. Ted models grace undeserved. Uh, If you've seen the show that it happens in season one, she walks up, she confesses, Ted forgives her. He he holds out his hand as, as, as if to say, we're good, I forgive you. But in the moment, she's so overwhelmed by this grace, she just falls on him and hugs him and cries overwhelmed by his grace. Jesus stands on the outside of the city as the rightful king of Jerusalem and the world, but he doesn't come bringing judgment. He doesn't come bringing rage. First, he comes bringing peace to you. 
As I shared earlier, Matthew is quoting from Zechariah 9.9, and Jesus is mounted on a colt. And the colt is very important because the king would only sit on the colt in a time of peace. Friends, we have to understand this. This is not Putin on the edge of the city. Jesus rides into Jerusalem, not on a war horse. Uh, he, He doesn't have an armed assembly of war tanks seeking to take out any who have rebelled against him. Though he could have, he comes not to destroy, but to offer peace. Peace to you. He doesn't rule by coercion, but he rules by love to any who would follow him. Jesus comes to the city saying, whatever has happened, whatever you are going through, whatever you are experiencing that has brought you unrest in your life. Jesus is the king who's coming to you this Palm Sunday, bringing peace. He's bringing peace. Uh, Not only is Jesus riding on a colt as a sign that he comes in peace, like King David, he's crying on the edge of the city for you. He's weeping for you. He, He sees your lack of peace this morning and he wants to fix it. Listen to how Luke tells the scene of this moment. He says this, and when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace. Jesus comes bringing what we know is undeserved. We we all here know we've blown it. We all know that we've been worked up about too many things. We know that we haven't followed him in the ways we should. We know that he has every right to come on a war horse in judgment, but he doesn't. He comes on a colt in peace. This Palm Sunday, Uh, Jesus is also making a pretty controversial statement too. in this scene. He's the only one on a colt. He's the only one riding in our midst at these city walls. Everyone else is on foot. He's making a controversial statement. It's essentially this. Jesus is declaring to you today. If you will listen, I'm the only one who will bring you the peace you are looking for. I'm the only one. We're all looking for peace. I believe it's one of the great needs of the human heart. And trust me, I know everyone here is looking for it. Everyone's looking for peace. But Jesus is saying all the other places you are looking will only give you shallow peace that will not heal the wound. We see this in our story. Jesus will go into the city. He will go right into the temple. And the religious people there are looking for peace by what they do. They ask the question, am I good enough? Am I good enough? And Jeremiah, the prophet, uh, he's called out this shallow peace before uh, saying this isn't this isn't the kind of peace that we need. He said this. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. They've healed the wound of my people lightly saying peace, peace when there is no peace. He's talking about the religious leaders telling you, here's how you find peace. This will give you peace, but it only heals the wound lightly. Friends, what is inside the city walls? You are looking to for peace that only heals the wound lightly, as Jeremiah put it. Uh, It won't truly heal the wound. Whatever it is you're going to inside the city looking for peace. Is it your career? Is it your looks? Your family? You'll know what is in the temple that you're going to inside the city. You'll know what it is because it's requiring you to sacrifice something. You You can just feel it in you. 
What is that? That the religious people in the temple were asking, am I good enough? But maybe that's not your question this morning. Maybe your question is, am I successful enough? Am I smart enough? Am I attractive enough? Am I, am I helpful enough? But these will only heal the wound lightly. Jeremiah said, declaring peace, peace when there is no, no peace, no peace. What are you looking to for peace while Jesus stands outside the city walls weeping for you, weeping for you? And he wants to give you the peace that you're looking for because he knows he's the only one who can heal you. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it so succinctly. He said it this way, God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. Jesus declares to you this Palm study, I'm the king who is coming to you and I'm bringing peace if you want it. So Jesus comes bringing peace, but notice also he comes bringing salvation. Matthew quotes from Zechariah 9, 9, and he tells us this, say to the daughter of Zion. Now, what a, what a weird phrase. What, what, what's that all about? Well, you find this phrase, Matthew quotes it, and we find it elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, this, this phrase, daughter of Zion, and it's associated with salvation. We actually see this in Isaiah 62. It says this, behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out a city, not forsaken. Isaiah, Zechariah, and now Matthew tells us about a king who is coming to you. And this king is bringing salvation this morning. And that is incredibly good news. Though we reject Jesus's invitation for peace, though we have turned to other things and to other temples to heal the wound. It doesn't stop Jesus from coming to you this Palm Sunday and declaring there is salvation even for you this morning. It says here in Isaiah that Jesus comes to a city not forsaken, a city not forsaken. God will not forsake those who want his salvation. And maybe that's you this morning. You want his salvation. Uh, you've been living a life on your own terms. You've been king of your own life. But if you're honest, it isn't working out too well. And maybe you've been trying to control your future or you've been living with resentment or regrets about what has happened in the past. Jesus stands on the outside of the city on this Palm Sunday and he declares to you, I have not forgotten you. I have not forgotten you. I want a relationship with you. I'm, I'm, I'm coming and I'm bringing salvation if you want it. No matter the places we have turned, no matter what has happened, Jesus comes to you this morning as king of the universe. That's why he's here. And he's bringing peace and salvation for all who want it. No matter what has happened, no matter what you've gone through, no matter what you've carried, he isn't going to forsake you, especially not this morning. But that leads us to the final question. How do we get what Jesus offers? He, he, he comes bringing peace and salvation and healing. How do we get what he offers? True healing. Well, Matthew has been intentional to compare and contrast two groups in our passage. We have the enthusiastic crowds following Jesus and the unwelcoming city who wants nothing to do with him. Uh, Jesus, right after he enters the city, will go into the temple and turn over tables as a prophetic sign 
that the true temple that brings peace and salvation that you are looking for is me. But the city wanted nothing to do with him. Uh, In fact, Jesus's actions in the temple were the final straw and confirmation that this guy is scary, that he is disruptive to our systems of power and control, and he must be dealt with. Jesus essentially draws a line in the sand for us this morning. We really cannot have it both ways. We can't say we want peace and salvation and seek to find it somewhere else other than Jesus. It does not exist. I will tell you now, it does not exist. It will only heal the wound lightly. It will heal the wound lightly. It is peace, peace, but it is no peace. To quote Lewis again, God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. So the question for us this morning, how do we get what he offers? Jesus has come. He's on the edge of the city. He, he, He has come offering peace and salvation to you this morning. Those looking for healing, how do we get what he offers? Well, we see two things in our passage. First, Matthew tells us they put down their cloaks. They put down their cloaks. Look at verse eight. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Um, I don't know if you watched the Oscars. It's been in the news a little bit uh, the last couple weeks. Um, but there is this sense from the Oscars. We get this, this language that we have carried throughout our life. We talk about the red carpet experience. Someone gets the red carpet experience. When, when we have guests over to our house, they don't see the house how it normally looks. You know, mud smeared on the walls, a clothes everywhere. Oh no, oh no, they don't get that house. What do they get? Perfectly immaculate house. And it never looks that way, just in case you know, if you come to our house, never looks that way. The Oscars popularized the sense of the red carpet experience, that we, that we honor the elite, the royalty, those worthy of praise. And that's what Jesus's followers are doing. They're, they're putting down their cloaks to acknowledge his royalty, that, that royalty's in their midst. A, a person worthy of praise has come into our presence. Also notice that the crowd around Jesus, it says, spread out their cloaks, their cloaks. They didn't go to their buddy and say, hey, can I borrow your cloak? It's going to get a little dirty, but I promise I'll, I'll, I'll take it to the cleaners. No, no, no. They, took, they took their cloak. How we get what Jesus offers is that this invitation becomes personal to you. It becomes personal. Jesus isn't simply the king of all reality. If you put down your cloak, you're saying Jesus is the king of my reality, my world. You're essentially saying to Jesus, I will put down my cloak because I am done trying to be the ruler and king of my own life. I'm done because it's not working. You're essentially saying I've put down my cloak and I'm handing over control because that's all I have left. Have you put down your cloak? That's what we need for peace and salvation. We need to take our cloak and put it down as a sign of who is the true king in our presence. Putting down your cloak is a way of saying, Jesus, you're the Lord of my job. Jesus, you're the Lord of my family. Jesus, you're the Lord of my money. All the ways that I've tried to control, all the ways I've tried to manipulate. We now put down our cloak and we ask him to lead us as we follow. 
Have you put down your cloak this morning? How do we get what Jesus offers? First, we put down our cloak. Second, we shout Hosanna. We shout Hosanna. Uh, Look at the passage, just the next verse, verse nine. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, These crowds following Jesus knew what Jesus offered and they knew he was the only one who could give them what they needed. That's why they are worshiping him at this point. They're shouting Hosanna. Now, this phrase, Hosanna, we, you may have heard of this phrase, and sometimes we struggle to actually know what it means, but Hosanna just means, please save us now. Please save us now. That's what Hosanna means. There's an, there's an urgency to this. There's a, there's, a, there's a longing to this. There's a sense of undeserved grace that we need. Uh, you see this with your kids, you see this with others. I have this sometimes happen in the morning. My, my role very early in the morning, uh, we struggle to get the kids up with school. It's early. They're grouchy, but my role is to get breakfast for everyone. So, so they're, they're half awake. They're, they're coming into the kitchen. They, they sit down. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I'll say to them as kindly as I can. I know they're, it's, it's, it's hard in that morning. And I'll say, uh, buddy, buddy, what can I get you for breakfast? And he'll look at me and he'll say, I want a bagel. (laughs) We've all been there. So no judgment on my kids. Okay. You've been there. Now in that moment, I'll usually come back to him. I'll say, do you want to say that again? Do you want, do you want, do you want to try that again? And they'll usually come to their senses and they'll respond. Please, can I have a bagel? You are the best daddy in the world. (laughs) Now that last line was completely made up, but they will say, please. Because it's a sign of undeserved grace. It's a sign of needing something outside of your own resources you know you don't have. The crowd shouted, please save us now. Please save us. What it means to be human is that we have to shout Hosanna to something. We have to say to something in our life, save me. We might be shouting Hosanna to our career or, or, or just trying to keep all of life together Uh, by control. Uh, It could be for you. Just, I just want to be a really great parent. And, and, and for you, that's where Hosanna is. Uh, It could be just financially. It could be something simple as the next trip. Oh man, I cannot wait for this next trip. (laughs) Hosanna. But the question this morning is where where have you looked and have shouted Hosanna? We're looking for some identity, some, something to save us. We're shouting Hosanna. The question this morning is outside the city walls, as Jesus makes his way in on this donkey, are you shouting Hosanna to him? That's how peace and healing will flood your soul this morning. When we join the crowd entering Jerusalem that day, when we make Jesus the boast of our life, as Paul taught us last week, the crowds are shouting Hosanna to the son of David. 
Now, the commentators agree on this, that this statement, Hosanna, the son of David, it's it's a statement of praise rather than a prayer. Uh, It's a recognition of who Jesus is and who they believe him to be, and they, they trust him as the king of their life. Is your worship of him, is it seeping into all the pores of your life? Is it seeping into your work and into your relationships, into your parenting? Is it it seeping into the way you study for classes as a student? Jesus says, I've come to give you peace and salvation that you are looking for. And that's what I'm bringing to you this morning. If you will worship me. If you will shout Hosanna. There are two crowds today, just like there were two crowds on that first Palm Sunday. One is in the city and they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He was just getting in the way. The other outside of the city, following his footsteps, couldn't possibly imagine their life without him. This morning, Jesus asks, which crowd are you in? The true king is coming to you today. Do you see the crowds? Do you hear them? Do you see the king? Are you shouting Hosanna? Please save us now. Please save me now. You're all I got because you're king. Let's pray. Our father, what good news of your gospel to all who cry out Hosanna, who who, who all have said, I have nothing left but are brought into your great love for this world. Jesus, we see you weeping for us on the edge of the city with open arms as the great reminder that you will never leave us or forsake us. Spirit, remind us again of all the blessings that are ours in Jesus and that he is the king coming to us this morning with peace and healing for everyone who wants it. We pray this in his name and everyone said, amen, amen.